from Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. So we have a bit of an unusual episode for you today. Longtime Talking Tax listeners will know we've been following very closely the two-pillar process at the OECD to remake how companies pay taxes across international borders. There's been a lot of news of this process in the past few weeks, so Bloomberg tax reporter Isabel Gottlieb called up Bob Stack, a managing director at Deloitte's International Tax Group and former senior Treasury Department official. In fact, Stack wasn't just at the Treasury Department, but was the top negotiator for tax issues at the OECD during the Obama administration. Bob was very generous with his time and, as you'll hear, also very candid in his assessment of the political landscape, both here and abroad. But as you might expect from what is among the most complex multilateral tax negotiations ever undertaken, this is pretty complicated stuff, which means Bob and Isabel sometimes delve into technical areas. So to help any of you listeners who may not have been following this multi-year process blow by blow, I'll occasionally be chiming in with little explanations or annotations of the things they're talking about only when necessary. Okay, got it? All right. The first thing we need to explain are what these two OECD pillars are. Pillar 1 would reallocate a portion of profits of the world's largest multinational corporations to the countries where they make sales. Pillar 2 would set a global 15% minimum tax rate. And we just got some news on Pillar 2 recently. The U.S. has not adopted this minimum tax, but the governments involved in the OECD effort agreed to give U.S. multinationals a one-year reprieve from something called the UTPR. That stands for the undertaxed profits rule, and if it's in effect, it would allow foreign countries to tax U.S. companies' U.S. profits if the U.S. is taxing them below 15%. So that's where we're at. I'll be back to explain more in a bit, but for now, here's Bob talking about the significance of this most recent development. You know, as an outside observer, I was watching uh, how U.S. Treasury was going to, you know, deal in these negotiations. Because you have to remember, the United States went around the world and sold a 15% min tax to the world and then didn't do it ourselves. We sold jurisdiction by jurisdiction min tax and didn't do it ourselves. And yet we keep going over hat in hand and saying, oh, we need a little, a few other things, you know, to kind of keep the ball rolling. And really, I think having had the job Michael Plowgen has, it's uh, quite an accomplishment, I think, what they came back with. The man Bob just referenced there, Michael Plowgen, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the Treasury Department, and he just testified before Congress last week. Let me start with the UTPR safe harbor. Why was that so important? Well, 2025 is the year that we all expect there needs to be some tax legislation in the United States because the TCJA cliffs kind of come into effect at the end of that year. The TCJA, or Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, was the Trump administration's big tax bill, and the cliffs Bob is referencing are two provisions in the bill that are set to expire. And given that we now have divided Congress, like it doesn't feel like there's going to be big tax bills between now and then. And so 25, we have presidential elections, congressional elections will have a totally new status. So it made so much sense to say, golly, don't hit the U.S. with the UTPR in January 1 of 25 when Congress has got to come back and kind of deal with all these issues. So that was huge. And um, it was purposely designed to not, it doesn't turn the UTPR off everywhere, like in tax havens, but it did in the United States. And I think that was a really extraordinary accomplishment. Equally extraordinary was this treatment of transferable credits. Now, 
the way the gold rules work, if you have a non-refundable credit, you're treated like you paid less tax. And that may mean your effective rate falls below 15. If you have a refundable credit, it's treated like you had more income. And if you do the math on a little piece of paper like I had to do, you're better off having more income than lower tax for that calculation. But all the guidance that had come out to date didn't talk about what to do with transferable credit. So in the hands of the person that gets it, they may not be able to use it and get a refund, but now they can sell it to somebody else and in effect have that same benefit. So that was totally unaddressed. But the problem for, again, for Michael and Treasury was, uh, golly, this IRA bill that just came out has buckets of these transferable credits, and it would have had an enormous policy impact on the on the use of those credits if you had to treat them as just reducing tax. Of course, the big unanswered question is the status of Pillar 1. I think, frankly, it's hard to say that that wasn't a disappointment, at least if you're over at the OECD, that they were unable to have the signing ceremony in the second half of the year to produce a draft multilateral instrument. You know, they did say that in their statement that, you know, there are a, a few open issues to be dealt with. Like, I think they tried to downplay that. Michael testified before the House committee and talked about actually, well, we can't really do an estimate of the cost because there are open economic issues. Um, and then kind of fast forwarding to 2025, you talked about that's the year that Congress is going to really have to sit down and figure out what to do with the U.S. international tax system. Some sort of tax legislation seems nearly inevitable. Um, what options does Congress have to address the U.S.'s pillar two problems? And maybe if you could give just a very brief summary of what the issues are that are um, facing U.S. companies due to the U.S. not uh, not adopting pillar two. Yeah. So what do we do about the application of the UTPR to the U.S. parent? And there's really three options, right? We could do a QDMDT and we take we take the money. Although if you do that, you still have undercut the value of some of your non-refundable credits because the QDMDT will pick it up in that tax. Okay, it's me again. A QDMTT, boy, that's a mouthful, is a provision in Pillar 2 that allows for a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax. You could change the structure of our credits and make them refundable. You know, talking to folks around town, that is an extraordinarily expensive option for the United States, given the the way we use these non-refundable credits and has policy concerns that make most people very, very skeptical. You know, the third option is that, you know, the Republicans in the House are talking about is, well, we're just going to pass legislation or retaliate against anybody who would dare uh, put this UTPR on our parent entities. And, you know, for our sophisticated listeners like, OK, whether you can do that or not depends on a really critical alignment of basically single party control in the House, the Senate and the White House in order to really be able to pull that off. So those feel to me like the three sets of options you know, that are out there and Congress will grapple you know, with those. This is something I've been wondering about the retaliatory legislation that the Republicans yeah. have been talking about. Um, this would be applying retaliatory measures, retaliatory taxes, for example, against countries applying legislation that in some cases they're already well on their way to adopting. Is it reasonable to expect for example, EU states or Japan and Korea who have their pillar two legislation pretty well set to 
um, undo legislation that's been passed? Is there a way for a country that has legislation in place to just not apply it to the U.S.? Like, if the retaliatory legislation sort of did its job in getting other countries worried about applying this to the U.S., what could they actually do to avoid that retaliation? Well, I mean, I think the easiest answer is you just have to go change your legislation because you go, uh-oh, I don't really want the retaliation. You referenced that Ways and Means hearing last week of, uh, of Michael Plowgen, the Treasury Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Tax, um, questioning him about a, a lot of the issues that have come up in the OECD talks, particularly Pillar 2 and UTPR. Um, we've seen a lot of strong feelings on the Hill about the way Treasury has been handling this. Where do you think this is all going? What do you think that hearing is um, is leading to more, leading to something bigger? Where where is this all heading? Well, I think the rest of the world is sitting up and taking note that there's a chunk of our politics, the Republicans that control the House of Representatives, that are very unhappy with this application of the UTPR to the U.S. I think it's a little more parochial question that they're unhappy that the Treasury in our system of government negotiated something that it had the power to negotiate without talking to Congress, et cetera. That's a little more inside baseball. But for the rest of the world, I think they're going to sit up and take notice like, uh-oh, this is a big deal applying the UTPR to the U.S. companies. Having said that, between now and 2025, this is really a lot of arm waving, isn't it? Because nobody expects that these bills can get through the Senate and get a signature by the president. And so there's a lot of posturing going on to set the table for where we're going to be in, in 2025. So hinging on the next election. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line. So there's, it's important, of course, that one party make its unhappiness known and that the rest of the world hears it, and then they'll have a chance to react um, over time as well, as we just talked about in terms of the application of these rules. Let's shift focus now to one of the things that we did find out about Pillar 1. The OECD announced that there was conditionally, depending on enough countries signing up, going to be a freeze on new DSTs. Okay, DSTs. That stands for Digital Services Taxes, and it's something that a number of countries have started to adopt to try to get tax revenue from technology companies. Pillar 1 would do away with these, but as you'll hear, it's not quite that simple. Can you walk us through kind of how the politics play out on this one? So who... Essentially, who is who is helped by this freeze? And I'm thinking about both sort of companies, different countries, and where this all takes us a year farther down the road when the freeze would end. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing about who's helped by this are the U.S. companies that would have been subject to these DSTs. You know, there are several countries that already have DSTs in place, and they were able to keep them. Uh, France, UK, Italy, Austria, Turkey, and India. I think one of the perhaps under-recognized achievements of this administration has been to push further proliferation of those DSDs down the road. They first did it by saying, okay, everybody, hold off until 1124, because that's what amount A will be in effect, and we'll be good. All right, it's me for the last time, I swear. Bob just mentioned something called amount A. That's the name for Pillar One's effort to reallocate the largest company's profits. Now, I think they managed to do something that is even politically more challenging. They said to everybody, hold off another year. So we kind of sold the world on saying, look, as long as we sign the darn thing, we get another year. If we start to really make progress, 
uh, we get add on to, to the end of 2025. The U.S.'s ability, and specifically the U.S.'s the U.S. Senate's ability to ratify Mount Day, bring Mount Day fully into effect, um, is one of the biggest questions that's been hanging over the global tax deal for years. Is pushing back the onset of new DSTs by a year, does that make it any more likely that a Mount Day comes into being a further year down the road? That's a great question. I, I think they're kind of disconnected. The Republicans were pretty clear at the hearing the other day that they don't like Pillar 1 either. Of course, if this goes to the, it'll be a Senate issue if it's a treaty issue. But you could imagine a world in which people say, I don't like Mount A. And if you're going to continue to do DSTs, we'll go back to the tariff approach we took, we, we threatened to take before. So we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. For those of us that don't like Pillar 1, we won't do Pillar 1 and we're not going to stand for DSTs. I do want to make a point on DSTs though. People use the word like it's like everybody knows what a DST is and, you know, one size fits all. You have to remember the DSTs that got in the craw of U.S. tax representative in the prior administration were, were the European ones that came out at first. And they had two features that the USTR said were offensive and caused a trade problem. Number one, they were targeting industry sectors, social media, right, and intermediation, companies that stand between people that want to rent houses or buy, use cars. Uh, and they said, that's a sector the U.S. dominates. So you've kind of aimed it at us, number one. And number two, you put a threshold of 750 million euros that looks like you're only after the big companies. And hey, we're the only country with the big companies. So you were coming after us. But I do think one view is U.S. folks might say, we don't like Pillar 1, but we're going to retaliate if people do DSTs that discriminate. The other view is, hey, let's do Pillar 1. We get this kind of harmony. We get the world in line and we'll do away with these DSTs, however they're defined. And that's the better place to be. And in that world, they're they're linked. Now, Canada, a neighbor and close ally of the United States on many things, um, refused to sign this agreement over concerns about the DST freeze and specifically officials, Canadian officials said, related to the lack of a timeline connected to the DST freeze. Um, were you surprised to see Canada opting out on this issue? And, and how big of a, a, a point of friction do you expect this to become? Well, was I surprised? Yes and no. Yes, because Canada is not your typical outlier in multilateral anything, right? They're basically a great multilateral player. But Canada has unique facts on the DSTs. Their, their finance minister uh, was speaking just last week, Christia Freeland, and, and she was giving their context. They were ready to do a DST in 2020, okay? And the, the Biden folks came in and negotiated the standstill. But, you know, in a parliamentary system like Canada, once you put something in your budget or in your economic uh, statement, it, it's like, uh, we're going to do that legislation. So they were like right there at the edge. Well, the U.S. then grandfathered France, U.K., Italy, Spain, Austria, Turkey, and India. And Canada was sitting there going, holy mackerel, we were just about to do this. And now you're telling me I, I have to can't do my DST till 2024. So then Canada got a little clever. They said, okay, 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 we're going to go along. We're going to be a good player. But our DST, again, it's in their plan. It hasn't been enacted. When we enact it, it's going to be retroactive to 2022, just in case 
this amount A is not effective, 1124. Okay, fast forward to now. So now Canada sits there and goes, wait a second. We're not saying we're pushing the DST freeze off a year because amount A is going to be effective in 25. We're pushing it off because a bunch of countries are going to sign it by the end of 23. And maybe that was a bridge too far, given how much they've already kind of put on the table. Now, you know, there's been a lot of news articles and talk about the fact that, that Canada is talking to the U.S. and will we all play nice in the sandbox at the end of the day? People are making noise that they will. Of course, Canada has its political pressures with respect to, you know, how it is perceived by its electorate with respect to the U.S. tech companies. And then, of course, it's, you know, overall relation with the U.S. And we'll, you know, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, how important is the Canada question? Well, Canada didn't sign the, the most recent agreement and all the other countries did. So you could imagine a world in which Canada goes its own way, but all those other countries seem to have already committed themselves to have a standstill. Um, the other way to look at it, which feels like the way Treasury is looking at it, is no, 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 I can't have any breach in the dam. I've got to hold off all the DSTs. I've got to have Canada on board because the standstill is like super important to us. So that's we're going to see how that dynamic plays out. What's your sense of how the timing plays out? 30 countries and significant countries with a lot of big companies in them need to sign up by the end of the year. How quickly would you expect that amount date text has to be finally agreed to be able to meet that 30 country deadline yeah, by year end? It's a really good question. You would think it's got to be uh, September, October. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. The countries are then going to need time to take it back and, and get that done. And then it does depend a little bit. I think it's a bit of a mystery how big these open questions are. Uh, again, I, Michael mentioned in his testimony things like the withholding taxes, which is a big deal to a lot of countries. And so I don't know how those things should get done in a weekend or are we going to kick the can down the road again or not? I, I, I'm, I'm as interested as everybody else is in how that all plays through. And that was Bob Stack, Deloitte Managing Director and former Treasury Department official, speaking with Bloomberg Taxes, Isabel Gottlieb. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax is produced by Isabel Gottlieb and myself, David Schultz. Meg Shreve is our editor. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, 
Does the FTC, under Chair Lena Khan, even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.